Welcome to the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Each week, we bring you discussions with educators on how they use blended, self-paced, and mastery-based learning to better serve their students. We believe teachers learn best from each other, so this is our way of lifting up the voices of leaders and innovators in our community. This is the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 120 of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. My name is Tony Rose Deanna and she, they pronouns a community engagement manager here at MCP. And I am joined today by a mathematics educator that has served as a teacher, instructional coach, state educational specialist, and is now a seventh grade mathematics teacher at Punahou School in Honolulu, Hawaii. Joe Manfrey. Also, Joe is a DMCE for our community, so he definitely knows what he's talking about. But welcome, Joe. Thank you for having me, Tony Rose. Yeah, it's so exciting to be in this space with you. And thank you so much for saying yes to the podcast. So before we get started, how are you feeling today? I am feeling very well. We had a great morning. Uh, We had breakfast served on campus. It's our last week prior to winter break. So uh, kids are loosening up. We had pajama day, spirit week. So it's a, it's a great start to the day. And then I have this, this podcast call with you. Yay. That seems like it's bringing a lot of joy, um, everything that's happening. So that's, that's really exciting. Thank you for sharing. And so, all right, Joe, let's get started. Tell us more about who you are and how you started your MCP journey. Sure thing. So I've been teaching in Hawaii now for 11 years. I've been in different roles in uh, schools, in Title I schools, in rural Oahu, as well as urban uh, Oahu. And um, I actually started exploring the Modern Classrooms Project when I was in the state office. Uh, Pre-pandemic, I was interested in seeing how we can build asynchronous uh, learning modules for students to be able to learn from different islands uh, to different teachers. And I reached out to Kareem. that fell through. We weren't able to to build something. And then when I left the state office during the pandemic to go back into the classroom, because I, I couldn't provide professional learning on, on things that I, I necessarily didn't do in the classroom. And virtual instruction was something that I didn't do. So I, I went back into the classroom and uh, I, I flipped my first year. So in school year 20. 20- 2020, 2021, I flipped my classroom. And last year, I fully implemented the modern classrooms model. I went through the course and and paid for a mentor. And I had an amazing uh, mentor, Aaron, who helped me in setting up my course. And uh, I was fully implementing it last fall. And last spring, I uh, applied for the Distinguished Modern Classrooms Educator uh, credential, and uh, I was awarded that. And and now I just finished the course to be a, an expert mentor myself, and I'm excited to work with teachers, um, hopefully this upcoming spring. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That's so exciting. Thank you. And I do have some follow-up questions just out of curiosity. Something that I'm really interested in lately is rural education. So can you tell me a little bit more about the difference or if there are any differences between rural and urban education and what, how you navigated that? Mm. Okay, so I'm going to take this from like an ethnomathematics background. And there's there's two perspectives. There's the emic perspective and the etic perspective. Emic is is way more contextual. And I think that is where I would say the emic perspective is more valuable in the rural areas where place-based learning, um, everybody knows each other a little bit more. And the community is, is uh, grounded in identity around the schools. That's what I, I felt 
when I was in uh, I was in Waianae. I was teaching in in Waianae on the west side of Oahu, and it's a it's a rural area. It's it's about an hour out of outside of Honolulu on from one side of the island to the other. And on that side of the island, you have people that are expert um, hunters. They are expert fish. There are expert fishermen. There is agriculture. There is so much uh, place based context. Uh, that is extremely valuable around the school and the school is the school, the community, everybody is grounded in where they are. And that is a form of their identity. Whereas I feel in an urban community, it brings more uh, diversity. It brings a lot more people from different perspectives into the same area, as opposed to having more of a homogeneous group in, in rural areas. And when you have the, the ethic lens of, of bringing in different perspectives uh, that is the value of that that urban education. So I, I'm at a school that has m- um, more of an urban feel, and we have students come from all over the island to our school. And we value that lens of diversity because we're able to grab so many different perspectives from uh, students who have parents with different backgrounds, different financial backgrounds, different socioeconomic status, uh, different uh, lived experiences. And, and we leverage that to create a, a richer experience that is more uh, student-centered, where students serve as, as part of the curriculum because the, the range of their lived experiences is so valuable for each other to learn from. Oh, my goodness. That was beautifully said, Joe. And I feel like that, yeah, no, that really painted a picture for me. I know something that I really loved about Hawaii uh, was that there's a huge Filipino population in Hawaii. Yes. And so um, I, I just... I, and I didn't know that. I just recently found that out maybe two years ago. So that was really fascinating to me that there is such a huge vast of different types of Filipinos, too, which I really love. But thank you for sharing that. That's really, really, really such a great way to answer that. Um, OK, so before we get started on our topic for today, which is guided self-paced learning, I wanted to go over with you something that we're focusing on this month, just as an organization. We're focusing on reflection and metacognition. So tell us more about what reflection looks like in your classroom. And I know that like working with you and having conversations with you, you're a really reflective educator, which I really appreciate and absolutely love about just who you are as a person. So tell us how that looks for you and your class classroom, with your students, even with yourself? For sure. So two things happen. There's the the organic organic and authentic reflection that happens on a, on a daily basis after interactions, especially if there's like challenging conversations. I always wonder like, okay, how could that have gone more smoothly? Or if a student is, don't get me wrong, students are supposed to be challenged, but if, if the challenge led to frustration, how could I bridge that to where they're, they're working in a flow and not necessarily feeling frustrated as much? Um, but I also provide more intentional structure. So I have a progress tracker that my students record. So I don't record students' grades. They record their own grades. And then after every mastery check, they'll write down in their progress tracker um, if there was mistakes that they made, what was the mistake that they made? And it's very important that I'm explicit with the students that you need to record not uh, what you didn't do. Don't just say like, oh, I, I didn't get the answer. It's about what you did and how it led to an incorrect answer. It's kind of like a good apology. A good apology isn't isn't about talking about, oh, I, sh- I should have done blah, blah, blah. It's about, no, this is what I did and that is why it was wrong. Now, I'll, I'll, th- I'll talk about my next steps and then move on from that. So like, that that's a big part for me in reflection 
of how my student have my students record um, any misconception they made. Um, the next part is about having next steps, like what are next steps moving forward? And after next steps are what are key takeaways that you want to recall? Um, that's important for me because like, let's say if my students are in a unit of study, they might be on lesson one three weeks before the test. And they might not be able to recall off the top of their head what they did three weeks ago. So I create space for them to record a takeaway that they would want to tell their future self when it comes time to prepare for the assessment. Um, second part is I always give a uh, reflection after a test. I always give a test reflection that helps me inform what I could do differently. Uh, it helps the students inform what they could be they can do differently. And I'm also uh, helping students think about where they are most successful in my class. As I bridge towards uh, guided self-paced learning, I want students to, to start thinking about like, what was most useful to them? Was it watching the videos over a couple times? Was it the independent practice? Was it getting up and working on a vertical non-permanent surface with a partner? Uh, so as they start reflecting on what was most successful in their learning, they can start advocating towards those avenues. And that's, I think, re reflection is huge to inform next steps to set yourself up for success in the future. Yeah. And I know like back when I was in the classroom, I had to be really intentional with even providing time and space for myself to reflect. Right. So and we typically my team and I typically did it at the end of every unit. And so that was just a great way for us to just continuing to push for the skills that we want our students to do that we were also doing that. And again, it was a great way of like, oh, what did, you know, how did we create barriers? And we didn't mean to create barriers, right? How did we create unintentional barriers that like our students didn't feel successful? What can we do better for the next unit to make sure that we're not creating these barriers? And so that was just a really great way. And I know that in education, we have so many things on our plate and sometimes reflection gets to be on the back burner and it's not a priority. And it's something that I always push for educators is that, no, we really need the time to reflect. We want our students to reflect. And we also want to continue reflecting ourselves to better educate ourselves and to, to improve our teaching and learning practices. Um, so you said a couple of things, Joe, and I just kind of wanted to touch base with it. Um, and so I really like the fact that you said, you know, you have these challenging conversations, but also understanding that you want to challenge them, but not frustrate our students, right? And so really providing that space to just be able to flow successfully and to be able to understand the next steps and understand how to, um, how they learn and advocate for themselves, right? And so when you say that you have your students record their own grades, how did you create that practice? Like, how did you relinquish that control? Because, you know, as educators, we really like to be in control and grades is a huge thing. So how did you create that space, especially with you teach seventh grade, right? Yes, that is correct. Yeah. So how did you do that with seventh graders? Because seventh graders are wild. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I created a Google uh, sheet for each student that each student can record their own grades. And then with formulas and Google Sheets, you can have students just record their overall grade. And I'm, I'm just thinking back to the time when I was a student, I really had a hard time if I took a test and I got the test back a week later, the first thing I would think of is like, oh, oh yeah, that's right. I took that test. I'm not thinking about my mistakes. I'm not thinking about my learning. I'm thinking, okay, I got this grade. And I want to shift that focus for my students. Like, I don't, I don't want my students to be thinking about the grade. I want them to be thinking about their learning. And how do I get them thinking about their learning? Well, if they record their grade in their progress tracker, they have to take, they take more ownership of that. 
And then even the grading uh, process, I don't grade anything without a student standing next to me or uh, I'll host ways for them to self and peer grade. And when they have to record their own grade down, rather than them asking, what grade do I get? It's more about, okay, I did this. What grade should that be? And then I, I circle it back to them and go, okay, what kind of mistake are we dealing with here? Is it an arithmetic error that is related to previous grade level learning? Okay, it's not going to be as high of a deduction. If, if we're struggling on the skill that was specifically addressed in this lesson, then there's going to be a, a, a larger deduction. So students are reflecting more deeply about what they're doing that's leading to their grade as opposed to just the grade itself. Okay. The entire time you were speaking, I was like nodding my head because yes, yes, and yes, right? And I I love the fact that you have, that you're able to have these conversations with students, right? And I think because of the blended learning part where they have instructional videos and you're not lecturing with students anymore, you actually have this this time now to really be more intentional with the kind of conversations you have with students. So I applaud you for that. That is beautiful. And I think one of the questions that popped up for me that I know a couple of our listeners and educators will have is that how, how do you trust the students that they're putting down the quote unquote correct grade? Uh, so after they record their grades before, before filing, they take the lesson quiz on hard copies. So before they file the hard copies, I, it, they run it by me and, and uh, we go through these one-to-one -one conversations. And I think that is a, is a really valuable part of the modern classrooms model itself is that everything I do and say is in response to what the kids are doing and what the kids are saying. So when they're working together in groups, I'm able to observe what they're doing in groups and and coach them. Uh, if there's a misconception, I can address that right away. And individually, after they grade, I meet with them and have a, have a mini 20-second one-to-one conversation. And instead of me providing feedback, so like think about if you're a teacher and you're grading outside of school and you're writing feedback down and you're giving and you're going to prepare to give it to a student, how do you know that the student is going to receive it? A, how do you know that they're going to internalize it? B. Um, I know that, that my students at least receive it and hopefully internalize it because I'm talking with them as I'm writing it down. So after they're done grading and they bring it up to me and I have this 20 second conversation, I know that in our conversation, students are internalizing what I'm saying and they're already thinking about next steps. At the beginning of the year, there's definitely challenges in grading. Some kids, uh, are, are, it's hard for them to understand the difference between uh, the grade level standard itself and prior grade level skills. But as the year goes on, we talk and we're like, okay, I see that you had, a, I think I see that you were challenged here in uh, simplifying your fraction. When did you learn how to do that? Oh, that was uh, third and fourth grade. Okay, that's going to be less of a deduction. So kids are already thinking like, oh, when did I learn this skill? If, if it's not the grade level skill that's being assessed and you made a mistake on a previous grade level skill, I'm not going to deduct as much. I okay, that helps a lot because you know our students they're they're a little wild and they are students and they are younger, so they'll definitely try to do as much as they can or as less as they can, right? Especially when it comes to grading. And so, I have a, just one last question about this: Do you share this Google Sheet with anyone else? So I have one sheet of just names that is is public facing, but each individual grade book, uh, each individual progress tracker is only visible to me and that individual student. Maybe their parents too, but nobody else in, in the class. No other student can see somebody else's progress tracker. It's very personal. 
Beautiful. I love that. That I guess that was what my question was asking is like, are there any stakeholders who have uh, access to these to this to these sheets, right? Because I know for me, I definitely had their advisor teacher, the co-teacher that I had, uh, caregivers and admin all on the same, like everyone's going to see what your progress is going to look like. There's no judgment, but just to be that, just so that everyone is on the same page with that student's learning. Definitely. Um, Okay. And I also just really wanted to point out too, that you said you had the key takeaways that your students created or picked out just for their future selves, right? We actually did a webinar and a podcast on retrieval practice. And this is something that I'm always, always encouraging educators as well is that, hey, we want to we want to have our students retrieve information that they learned yesterday, information they learned last month, last week, two months ago, right? Just so that it continues to stay in their memory and it continues to... Um, where students can access what their learning looks like, right? And I, I just really, really enjoyed you just restating that for us. And just the fact that, you know, shifting from, hey, what sh- what's my grade to like, okay, here are the things that I learned about this. What, what could I do to improve this? And also here I did this to improve it. So now how, how does my grade look, right? And so I think that Again, those are conversations are powerful, I think, especially with this model, because we get so much one on one time and small group time with students that we get to have these conversations, which is really, really great. It doesn't have to be formal all the time. Right. Like students don't actually have to write something down every single time. Just you having a conversation informally and authentically with students also kind of gives you a snippet of what their thoughts are with their learning experiences. So. Great. Whew, you're saying some cool stuff here, Joe. I love it. I love it. Okay. So time and time again, when educators start implementing a blended learning self-paced structure and mastery-based learning, there's always pushback, right? So how do you navigate conversations with students, colleagues, school leaders, and caregivers when they give you pushback? Yes. Uh, so we know that the modern classrooms model it is a more progressive approach to education, and and it's really future focused. It's understanding that the that the internet exists, that students can receive information from anywhere and everywhere. Uh, so I'll I'll start by just sharing the origin of the word mathematics. So in Greek, mathematics is broken up into two parts: mathema, which is of knowing things that you know, and then tics, the t i c s, which is doing the techniques. So it's really the knowledge, it's the knowledge of doing. So when we understand that mathematics is the knowledge of doing, it's something that we do, it's not something that we just receive. And in a a brick and mortar classroom, we know that there's a teacher up at the board lecturing the class, providing direct instruction for a majority of the class period. And then maybe that's followed up with independent work. And when the teacher shares the information up front, uh, that is based on a premise that they don't know if the students have already learned it before, some students may have, some students it might be even too much for, for what they're, they're capable of and it's over their head. Um, so the beauty of this model is that when I speak in, a cl- in, in class, whether I'm talking one-to-one with a student or whether I'm talking to groups, I'm providing a, a formative instructional model. I am only speaking at, to what the students need, not what the students might need. I know based on what I'm seeing in, in terms of students' work, I am providing feedback. It's a, it's a much more personalized approach and it's a much more valuable approach. So anytime I say anything in, a cl- in class, it's way more valuable for students. So students are paying attention more because they know I'm not wasting their time. I'm sharing them their information that they need. I provide a, a clear structure of how this looks from the video notes to the individual processing to uh, gallery walks, talking about our individual processing to collaborative problem solving and 
it culminates with the mastery checks followed by progress tracking. When, when students, teachers, uh, parents, when they see this model and how it, it's a more progressive approach and, and much more personalized approach, there's a lot less pushback and there's more of, okay, how can I support what you're doing? Um, how can I support my student in getting accustomed to this model? So I guess the question I didn't ask is, where do you think this pushback is coming from? Oh, um, we fear what we don't know. I think that just human nature in general is is we fear we, what we don't know. When, when people are introduced to a model that they don't know, there is an initial hesitation because we don't know it. And then it does require work to understand something. It requires learning, right? Anytime we're, we're, we're introduced to something we don't know, it, it takes time, effort, intentionality. We don't know if we want to put as much effort into learning something if we don't see it as valuable. So it's important for us to see it as valuable, to understand where our hesitation comes from. And hopefully, at the more informed we get, whether parents, admin, anybody who's not used to the modern classrooms model, like just the more research you get on it, the more you have an opportunity to, to have a conversation with somebody who's implementing the model or listen to this podcast. The more informed you are, the easier and more receptive you'll be to it as an option. It might not be the only op. It, it, it's not the only option, but it is definitely an option and a viable option that has been working in numerous classrooms across uh, the country, the globe, right? <laughs> so yeah, just getting informed. And I think that's such a reminder for all of us, right? We fear what we don't know. That is such a true human nature. Like that's just something that we do. And I think sometimes too, um, as you were talking, it kind of made me think about how our caregivers, their school experience is so different than what it is now. And then you put in COVID, right? And the whole virtual learning. And so there's a lot of misconception about, you know, my students are just looking at a screen and they're not actually learning. And so you're absolutely right when you say we fear what we don't know. And also this just creates a, um, I, I don't want to say it doesn't create a barrier, but it creates more of a, a bridge for learning and teaching between like students and caregivers, right? I've heard time and time again that, you know, caregivers don't feel comfortable uh, trying to go over and learn what their students are doing because again, it's outside of their scope. It's, you know, for example, like if I had kids, I wouldn't know how to teach math. Like there's no way. But if I had an instructional video, I know that that would be something that I could utilize so that my kid and I can learn together. And so this is something that I tell our caregivers all the time too, is that, hey, like, everything I'm doing, it's all on the LMS and you can actually check out all the things that we're doing in the class. And so there's that transparency, there's that level of trust as well. And just like bridging all of the gaps between like uh, caregivers and just like what the education system looks like in schools, I feel like. I absolutely agree, Tony Rose. And when I think about like the pushback, it, it's it's twofold, right? It's like, oh, I don't understand the material. Well, here are the videos. Uh, well, I don't understand what what are you doing then if you're just providing videos? Like, how are the kids learning? And sometimes we confuse lecture with learning. Um, lecture is not learning. Lecture is is talking at. Um, so I'll I'll respond to that of like, well, this is what our in class experience looks like. We have opportunities for students to learn from each other. We have opportunities for students to learn with each other. I am providing formative uh, feedback based on the work that is produced and, and coaching 
uh, groups. So I'll, I'll be observing my five groups. If I see a vertical non-permanent surface that has a misconception, I'll use that as a teachable moment and either address it in that group or elevate it to the class. I'm still providing instruction, just much more meaningful instruction. And then students are being evaluated on what they know. That's the, the beauty of this mastery-based grading, like assessing where kids are for specific skills. Nobody's falling through the cracks. Um, and when parents see, oh, that's what's happening in the class, it's not just, you're not just showing your videos. Like, no, it's, there's solid instruction going on, individual processing, collaborative processing. Um, when students see the entire flow, then the, the, it's fun when the language shifts from um, what are you doing to how can I support what you're doing? Yes, to all of that, all of it. And I just really also love the fact that you said lecture does not equate to learning. I can tell you how many hours I spent at lectures and I couldn't tell you what I learned. <laughs> um, and as an adult now, I hate it when people talk at me. I feel like that's just, again, not a good use of my time, not a good use of your time. And so there's definitely better ways of presenting information and learning as well. So I think for um, a huge shift with this model too, is that the lecture is no longer like 45 minutes, right? 20 to 45 minutes. Like you actually get the information out in less than 10 minutes. And then the rest is to collaboratively or individually work on the skills that you need to work on in class. And I think that that's just so amazing and so different and so scary, right? And so when we think about um, coming from ground zero where there's lots of frustrations or assumptions or, you know, just like pushback and you were talking about providing this space for our learners to take ownership and accountability of their learning and then creating a self-paced classroom, how does that progression occur? Because there's also lots of misconceptions about self-pacing and we have made lots of mistakes about how to implement self-pacing. So how does this progression occur in your class? Yes. So uh, we talked about the first part that it, it's really about articulating the purpose of each element in this self-directed learning environment. So how how the videos work, uh, how the video provides initial context, and then students are, are allowed to individually process, collaboratively process, um, evaluate their understanding with the mastery check, reflect on their performance in their progress tracker. Like that's the bare minimum. And then the progression occurs because it's not just about, oh, I hit these checkpoints, this is the routine, and now I'm done. It's about performing each of those with fidelity. And that, that's where the coaching is required. That's where each class is unique in their needs on how to coach them on how to take notes. I have some students that come into the class that are already like uh, straight across. Everything is organized. We do Cornell-style notes in my class. Um, I have other students that take out highlighters and they have different colors for different functions. And I know that I didn't teach them that. I know that they learned that in previous year's classes, but they are well further along than their, than their, their classmates in, in how to take notes. So I work with the other students on how to uh, take notes with fidelity, where it's easier to look back on, easier for retrieval. Um, then I coach them on how to present their work for others to be able to understand. We talk about... Um, looking at work done on a board like a slide. When you're giving a presentation, you're not supposed to read off the slide. Same way as explaining your math work. You're not supposed to explain all of the numbers that are present. You're supposed to explain what they are, why, and how they work together in accomplishing the goal of, of problem solving. Um, we, I coach them on how to collaborate, that our goal is not 
uh, completion, that it's collective understanding, that we're supposed to be maintaining equity of voice. And our goal is to, to empathetically explain, to, to look at alternative processes and explain one that doesn't originally make sense to us. I coach them on how to reflect, kind of how I mentioned before, um, a good reflection is like a good apology, acknowledging what you did and how it led to the incorrect answer, not just saying, oh, I didn't do what was right. Um, after all of these, and, and I coach them on how to study math, I spend, uh, actually, that's like the first thing I do at the beginning of the year, talking about how we study math. We study math by doing it, not by looking over things, not by reviewing cue cards. It's not something to, mathematics is not something to memorize. It's something that we do. Um, when I'm coaching students through these, now, not only do we have these structures in the class, but now we're implementing them with fidelity. We're maximizing each of them to optimize their learning. Um, when students get that, the beauty is they start advocating and choosing avenues that they see work best for their learning. And, and that's where the self-pacing is almost, almost needed because when students start seeing what they need for learning, they don't see these uh, structures and the barriers of the structures. They see like, I need a little bit more time in this collaborative work or, oh, I want a little bit more time reviewing the video uh, multiple times over because I want to revisit this one thing that, that Mr. Merfrey mentioned. Or um, I just need a little bit more time to work by myself. Mr. Merfrey, can you give me a little bit more problems to do by myself before I take the mastery check? So... They, they dismantle all of the structures in my class and they gravitate naturally towards self-pacing. And it's only natural for me to create then the space for them to, to be self-paced in their learning. Uh, so we, we operate on a, on a guided self-paced learning model where um, it's open middle. So they start a unit at the same time and they finish a unit on the same time, but there's variability in how long they take to finish each individual lesson within that unit. So we call that guided self-paced. I mean, yes. Okay. <laughs> I, again, like there's, I just want to reiterate, I think the big thing that you said was that you have to have a clear structure of how self-pacing looks, right? And so again, I love the guided self-pace of like, you're all going to start the same unit at the same time and end at the same time, but in the middle is where you have a little bit more freedom. And I think sometimes to the assumption that like self-pacing, you just release students and just crash your fingers and hope that they, you know, they're successful. And I think, oh, no. yeah, I know. And I think hearing you talk is just like, again, the importance of yes, you know, students do have the autonomy to take ownership and accountability with their learning and they can advocate like, hey, I need more time or you know what, I need to practice this more. At the same time, as a facilitator, as an educator, we're creating those guidelines for them, right? And something that I heard you say multiple times, you coach your students, you show them how it's done, right? Or you show them one way of how it's done, and then they can get creative and how they want to, you know, uh, master that skill or that content. And and I think that that in itself is really important. And I, I love that you said that it's collective understanding and not completion. I just, 
my mind is just like, you just gave me more words that I can utilize and talk with educators about because, you know, compliance, that's what we've been doing with completion. And so now you got to have this collective understanding and really working with your community as well as like the equity of voices that you mentioned. And I just, I love that. And I think sometimes as educators, we just expect, oh, our students are in high school. They should know this already. And then we don't go over what the guidelines or the expectations or the structure looks like. And then that task or that, you know, that assignment just fails because the students just didn't have the guidelines and the clear structures that go along with it. And so I think, again, just like for our listeners and our educators out there, really, if there's a skill, if there's something that you expect our students to do, like model it, show, you know, coach them and guide them through it all before just like releasing them and expecting that they should just know, which they probably should, quote unquote, should know, but we all need a little reminder every now and then. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. So for school leaders who may question this self-paced blended learning and mastery-based learning model, what are some ways that educators can share the impacts of this model? Oh, definitely. Um, A big thing for us to be looking at is the fact that our students now are are more digitally literate than ever before. We have the most digitally literate uh, group of students that has ever existed in the history of the world. Um, and we need to be leveraging that. So if, if you're a school leader and you're considering different models and um, <laughs> what we need to look at is how, how do we leverage the skill sets that our students have to increase access and uh, increase equitable learning experiences? We can now create structures for students who are below multiple year multiple uh, years be- below grade level. We can create structures for students that are advanced and Um, We should not be turning a blind eye to the fact that students can access content via the Internet. Like the whole purpose of the brick and mortar school in previous years was because we didn't have the Internet. The only way that students were able to receive knowledge and learning was from the teacher in the class. You needed the kids to be sitting in rows. All eyes needed to be on the teacher and what the teacher said mattered. You needed to listen to everything the teacher said because you were not going to learn it any other way. Well, now, since the internet exists, you can learn it in other ways. I have students that sometimes will watch different YouTube videos. They won't even watch my videos sometimes before a lesson that, because they know what's going to be coming up ahead. Uh, they'll watch videos made by, by other teachers or something on YouTube, and then they'll have a good idea of what's expected in my class. And then in my videos, I, I ha- don't get me wrong, I have a unique uh, proprietary blend of like how I address uh, concepts. I try to be a little bit more broader, more conceptual, less procedural in my videos. Um, but students are, are way more prepared for what they're learning, especially if it's an, if it's, there's a knowledge focus um, as opposed to a skill focus. If, if you're focused on what the kids are learning in terms of a knowledge, like things they're expected to know, the internet exists. They can access that. So we need to create instructional models that don't turn a blind eye to that, but leverage that to enhance the student learning experience. And I also just want to continue highlighting the fact that technology enhances the learning. It's not something that replaces it, right? And uh, I joke around all the time with educators too, is that we're we're competing against TikTok. <laughs> yes. Um, I definitely utilize TikTok as a way to learn about all the different life hacks that I didn't know anything about. And so I really, I have um, really embraced TikTok as a learning tool for me. And I know a lot of our students have also embraced TikTok in a way where they can learn more about whatever it is that they're learning about. And so I really like how you said the brick and mortar 
that was created because we didn't have the internet. And so teachers were the gatekeepers, right? Like we were the only ones who knew all of this information. But now that we've created the internet, um, students have access to everything, everything. And we have to be okay with that, right? We have to be okay knowing that we're no longer the gatekeepers, but we're actually facilitators at this point. And that's how it should have been um, uh, moving forward as well. And so, okay, Joe, I've been just so fascinated with how you focus on equitable, inclusive, and accessible teaching and learning practices. This is something that you and I talk about all the time as well whenever we're on a call. And so what are some bite-sized actionable strategies that educators can start implementing in their model to ensure that genuine reflection is happening in their classes? Sure thing. Thank you, Tony Rose. Uh, when I think of bite-sized actionable strategies, the, the modern classrooms model really supports individual processing. It, it Creates uh, It allows for variability in processing time and mechanisms for videos, whether you're in, including an ed puzzle or whether you're having students take notes in the videos. Um, you can have some individual tasks and then you can take an individual mastery check. What sometimes is missing is the collaborative uh, learning experience and, and the value of learning from and with your peers and understanding different processes. And as a teacher, you can't let students accidentally collaborate. At the beginning of the year, you really want to structure collaboration in a way that allows students to learn from and with each other. The different ways from uh, in math, there are number talks. Uh, I like to give gallery walks where students put up problems at the beginning of class and then they walk around explaining their own work and somebody else's work. Uh, you need to think about small group collaboration. Like what are the structures that are in place? Are you having kids collaborate sitting down at a desk together? Or are you having kids collaborate at a vertical non-permanent surface, uh, an upright whiteboard where there's open dialogue and you can visually see what they're talking about at the same time? Uh, so it's, it's really optimizing these collaborative structures that complement the modern classroom model and, and a lot of the individual processing mechanisms that are in the model. So circling back, you as a teacher can't let students accidentally collaborate. You want to provide some structured collaboration at the beginning of the, of the year where you're able to shift that focus from completion to collective understanding. Yeah, that definitely helps a lot. And again, I, lo I love the focus uh, on community and collaboration and just continuing to learn from and with each other as well. So that's really, really powerful. Okay. So listeners, we're going to take a quick break for an announcement. And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about Joe's expertise and experiences and some of our next steps uh, to be able to spend some more time with Joe. Hey listeners, it's Tony Rose here with some announcements and reminders. If you and or your teacher bestie are interested in the virtual mentorship program, we do have scholarships available. Make sure to check out modernclassrooms.org slash scholarships. We have regional scholarships available for educators in Baltimore City, New York City, D.C., Chicago, Tulsa County, and the Twin Cities that include full tuition, a year of implementation support, and a $500 stipend for finishing the program. We are continuing our scholarship across the state of Indiana, which includes implementation support and 30 PGPs. Any educator in the state can enroll right now at modernclassrooms.org slash Indiana. We also have partnerships with districts across the country who are paying for educators to go through our training. As for professional learning, make sure to check out our webinars page on modernclassrooms.org slash webinars. And to connect with our community, join our Twitter chat on the first Wednesday of the month and our virtual meetup on the second Wednesday of the month. Both are at 7 p.m. Eastern time, and we hope to connect with you outside of our podcast. 
All right. And now we're back with Joe. So let's let's shift gears. Uh, next month, you'll actually do a webinar. Next month, meaning January, you'll do a webinar on guided self-paced learning. So give us a little trailer or a hook about what you'll be covering. Yes. Uh, so in guided self-paced learning, we're going to talk about how uh, there's a progression towards self-pacing, that it, if it is not an environment that students are used to, by articulating the purpose of each element and by helping students uncover how they learn best through coaching and reflection, you then can free open, uh, free up your classroom, uh, open it up and liberate student learning through the self-pacing that uh, we talk about with guided self-paced learning through that open middle of starting at the same time, uh, having ambiguity in the middle and allow and creating space for students to accelerate or slow down and then uh, finishing a unit at the same time. So those three parts, I'll repeat them one more time, uh, articulating the purpose of each element, helping students un uncover the, how they learn, uh, learn best through coaching and reflection, and then leading to informed student voice and choice that liberates students learning in the guided self-paced learning model. And I'm so excited about this because I know our community has lots of questions about how to make self-pacing work in the classroom. And so I think with your guidance and your expertise and experiences, we're definitely going to be able to, um, what's the word, increase teacher confidence in creating a self-paced structure. So, all right. So from your experience, Joe, you have lots of experience. What makes self-pacing so challenging to implement? The hardest part about self-pacing is knowing that each class, each student is unique and it requires effort and intentionality, uh, the same amount of effort as the first year you do it. Uh, in discovering who your students are, who your classes are, and, and how to meet their needs. And that when you provide formative instruction in the class, whether uh, it's observing and providing feedback to group work or individual work, because each student is unique, you need to be intentional towards each of them. So it's not going to change year after year. It's not going to be like, oh, you're just like this student. You're just like this student. It's because each student is unique you need to personalize your instruction for each of those students. Again, another great reminder, because I know there are some educators out there that actually differentiates the way that they self-pace within classes. So their first period could be so different than their fourth period. And so they have to accommodate to those needs. And that's, again, such a great reminder, right? And I think it's overwhelming to think about, especially if we have, what, 135 students, which I had at one point. And to think about each individual student, right, and not have this model to have the time and capacity to do that is really overwhelming. And so definitely give yourself lots of grace. There is, um, you know, lots of patience and lots of practice as well when you're trying to do something like this and trying to get to know your students as well. We'll always make mistakes, but I feel like as long as we continue to self-correct, to reflect, and then to do better next time, that's going to be the most impactful thing. And so, Joe, what do you hope to see in the future? And what goals do you have? I hope to see uh, curriculum be more accessible across uh, different, different providers. Uh, because we've gotten into a digital space, it's a lot harder to integrate materials that are made by different providers. Because like in the past, we used to have just a textbook, right? So it's very easy to open up two different textbooks. But now when things are digital, they are behind a paywall and it's not as easy to customize each of those materials to, to craft a learning experience. And I'm hoping there's a little bit uh, easier integration in the future um, across curriculums that we're really thinking about student learning and not profits. 
Oh my goodness. That's a whole other conversation, Joe. <laughs> yeah, I, I opened up a can of worms right there. You did. You did. Um, <laughs> now I have lots of thoughts. And But anyways, uh, so how can our listeners connect with you? Uh, I am on Twitter and Instagram as Math Manfrey, M-A-T-H-M-A-N-F-R-E. Only one E at the end. I'm on Twitter and Instagram that way. And Joe is very engaged on both platforms. So definitely reach out if you have any questions or if you just want a thought partner. So thank you so much, Joe. It's always a pleasure being in the same space as you. Listeners, remember, you can always email us at podcast at modernclassrooms.org. And you can find the show notes for this episode at podcast.modernclassrooms.org slash 120. Thank you all so much for listening. Have a great week. This is actually our last recording of the year, which is wild. And so we will be back in 2023. Whew, I'm still stuck in 2020, honestly. Um, <laughs> again, Joe, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Tony Rose. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to topics and tools we discussed in our show notes for this episode. And remember, you can learn more about our work at www.modernclassrooms.org and you can learn the essentials of our model through our free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Modern Class Proj, that's P-R-O-J. We are so appreciative of all you do for students and schools. Have a great week and we'll be back next Sunday with another episode of the Modern Classrooms Project Podcast. Podcast.